to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Okay, I don't know. That's too much time. We're going to be sued by German people. Yeah, no. <laughs> There's more of a slow build-up to the 99 Louvre balloons that I remember. <laughs> I think we just need the part where she says, Love balloons. Love balloons. <laughs> it's a banger of a song. Yeah. Boop, 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 boop. And we're living it. Yeah. Folks, welcome to the show. It's 99 Louvre balloons. Oh, are we recording? Yeah. God damn it. That okay. was by Die Band. <laughs> 99 love Nina die band some weird Nina German die shit. Band. I think it's the band die bar to die I couldn't say per se Is I don't it? speak German myself but I believe it's Nina die band and we're in 99 love balloons. I think it's Nene Nene shout out shout out to the song love balloons you nailed it because there is a and this is a warning a Chinese spy balloon flying over the continental <laughs> United States hot aridly looking down at our corns and our McDonald's's. Right. 99 Chinese balloons. Right through the middle of the U.S., a place where like most people don't feel like they got to look around too much. Where right. as the balloon? Where was it? It went over it? Montana. It went over Nebraska. <laughs> it's crucial. It said, hey, look, Nebraska. Where all our secrets are. So that's where the horses are. It's like a <laughs> home of Larry the Cable Guy. So I think they saw that. He's in charge of all the cables in America. I'm just picturing like if we were playing the civilization game of the United States, that that would be where our horse <laughs> tile is. Is over in Nebraska. They'd be like, we can shut down the horse tile. Yeah. As you know from reading the American uh, business press, like China is a, is a surveillance society, hardcore surveillance society. They have developed balloons. <laughs> that are almost undetectable. Uh, They haven't quite nailed how to not be detected. They are bright red and flying low. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Their smartest children are working on hot air balloon technology. (laughs) It's like a... Also, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. uh, The Chinese passion for kites surfaces once more. (laughs) It's Poddam America. (laughs) I'm Jake, that's Anders. Uh, Anders Lee here, actually with some uh, breaking news on this story. Rolling completely over Alex's intro, I love it. And I'm Anders' friend Alex. All right. Apparently, the balloon has landed in Montana, and uh, it it was red, (laughs) and then um, a new piece of the, the cloth was just released, some fabric with the Virgin logo on it. Richard Branson has emerged. Richard Branson has emerged. From his Extremely scathed <laughs> from the hot air balloon. As we covered over the bonus episode, Richard Branson be staying in hot air balloons. He yeah. cannot stop going up in these things and getting stuck. Yeah. Uh, he's going to fly a balloon across <laughs> China. I mean, he... I've never done it inciting a world war, and that's what I'm aiming for here. Uh, I mean, as we covered today, he, he does, they never uh, plan the landings. For these, so th- how this could one, you? How could you? This one, he was probably just like, "Well, I'll get shot down, <laughs> and it'll land perfectly in Montana." The F thirty-five fighter jet will deploy rockets, hitting the top of the balloon and sending me flying into right. Nebraska. There's Those wheat fields that he can land in softly. Like real talk, it's impossible to steer a balloon. Right? Yo, like the technology is not. It's not there. There's a the reason well, we don't use them very you much. You get anymore. rudders up there. What are you gonna do? How are you going to steer a balloon? Like wave your hands like you're trying to swim, you know? Yeah. Especially if they're unmanned or unhumaned, right? Yes. How do you? Because <laughs> well, then you can't wave your arms to swim. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, yes, this is clearly a an actual weather balloon. It is literally a weather balloon. Right. It, it, which is funny because Why we're would used it be... to the... 
anything else. We're just to get that straight for the listener. <laughs> if you are for some reason terrified the Chinese have sent an aggressive balloon over the United States, it is not 1910. That doesn't make any sense. They can see you from space. They use your, they see in your phone all day every time you open TikTok. It's a goddamn red balloon over Nebraska. <laughs> this happened like at the end of World War II, or like I think like the one of the stories, one of the odd stories with the end of World War II is like. 10 years after the fact, a Japanese spy balloon like hit California somewhere or whatever. Oregon. Was it Oregon? Yeah, it, uh, they sent out uh, like 9,300 bomb balloons. Incendiary balloons. Right, yeah, yeah. And yeah. This is like one of my the, the pet uh, passions of history. <laughs> right. Uh, nine Ex- World War II explosive history. They sent out 9,300. 9,299 uh, got, you know, stuck in the winds or whatever exploded or, or just like a couple did land in, well, they had to send them across the pacific right one of them made it to oregon and blew up a picnic and killed six people oh wow so, <laughs> that's what you get for picnicking in oregon right which is so I'm close su- to japan i am surprised we have not heard about this more in the the mainstream media this week people aren't uh, I call talking it about that story media. more. Yeah. Do you just like start them at the beach and then like blow a fan and then assume that <laughs> the physics of such are that there's no wind currents in between like across the Pacific Ocean? Well, you got to you got to look up like what the general wind trends are, put your balloon there cuz it doesn't matter how much you fan it. At the beginning, once it's a thousand miles out to sea, you gotta just hope it's going there already. One of my favorite balloon facts from history is that uh, in the <laughs> this ti- this episode is entitled "Balloon Facts." By the way, <laughs> they developed like hot air balloon technology, uh, you know, kind of like around the time of the French Revolution, and the French were really into it. And there was a guy yes. in the Paris French people love balloons. Let's say it. There's a guy in the Paris Commune when they were being blockaded by the like Prussians who escaped yeah. the city in a hot air balloon. A French noble, right? <laughs> yeah. He was going to get decapitated, so he took off in a balloon. Yeah. I'll see you next time. No, I think that's a different story. Oh, really? No, this guy was on the side of the, the Commune, but he like got out in a hot air balloon and then like, uh, but it's like, because they were being uh, fucking sieged. So they were like mm, eating mm, rats and mm. shit inside of the city and being sieged by the German cannons. But he got out and then it was just like, what are you going to do? Get a bunch of guns and put them back in the balloon and then try to get back in? <laughs> oh, like, that would be so sick. <laughs> He's just like, so long, suckers. It's interesting you two were describing two different figures from history at the same time, almost passing like hot air balloons in the night. Yeah. That should be an action movie, uh, Balloon Wars. I mean, I feel like it would be... Quite easily, you if you you have two uh, balloons in competition with one another, in, in, engaged in deadly battle, it, mm. I think it ends pretty quickly. Just the first one to shoot the other balloon right. and pop it. Uh, we we should clarify there has been an update to the balloon story since we've started recording. We've found out that uh, it was not Richard Branson's balloon, but the balloon was shot down by the president of the United <laughs> States, who attacked it with a plane <laughs> and brought it to a permanent end. Can you imagine if they did that to one of our weather balloons? That we would be nuking them right now. Yeah, I was thinking about this because like there is you got to think about both sides of these things if they shot down a balloon well also like you know people that are like really into <laughs> the goodyear blimp goes over china <laughs> i feel like there are people who are here who are really into china in kind of a reductive way and are going to be like how do like because i guess i also don't care that joe biden shot the balloon down because it's a balloon like it's just a there's no one in it, right? Well, I don't I don't like that we're raising tensions balloon wise. Here's what I think is fun. here's what I was confusing to me is why is this a story? Balloons like, are for fun. Are they trying it. to start World War Three with this? Because that's how every war starts. It's some weird shit. Right, like this. Shooting it down is not helpful. I will say. I don't think that. I think no, this is the America, move would pal. be to ignore it. It's compromised to a permanent end. Then, Don't tread on me. <laughs> do not float over me. <laughs> That's what the snake is saying. Um, I, it is interesting that the, the American Red Scare perspective is, okay, they've sent this balloon, this seemingly innocuous balloon, to make us look silly, but it's floating over where we keep all of our intercontinental ballistic missiles, which are over the middle of the country. And... Okay. From that perspective, China, I guess, just wants to like 
look, look at them balloon wise <laughs> like just see if they're really there if we made them up just see like hey that's a lot of missiles i mean if that if it legit is a spy balloon that's looking at missiles have we, there's tons of American you know shit all the fucking missiles. planet, like yeah. serving the same function. <laughs> they have satellites. Homie, you know, we are so upfront about having those missiles. That's right. kind of the only thing we got going right now is that we have a thousand intercontinental ballistic missiles. Yeah, and they've uh, and they have satellites that they can look at them with. So. There's a lot of reasons it's not the balloon, but the thing is, balloon aggression cannot stand. There should wait, could there be like a video game, like a very popular video game where you balloon battle. That's just uh, Mario Party. Are you the, there should be. I Mario mean, Party is balloon battle. There's balloons, which is a tower defense game, which is kind of the situation we are also living in and that the balloons come and you have to pop them or else you go to war. <laughs> <laughs> you need to play as Joe Biden. <laughs> Joe Biden, who is characterized by that monkey. Yeah. The monkey is the one popping. It. Do you yeah. guys know about balloons? <laughs> is it an iPad game? Yeah, well, it's old now, but yeah, I used to play it on uh, Flash when I was in high school, and uh, you throw darts at the balloons. <laughs> you see, not today, pal. He said... <laughs> He was asked about it, and he was like... This is an all-timer week for the United States. <laughs> the balloon story and the uh, socialism denouncing bill. Back-to-back. Yeah. Back-to-back hits. He was It's like our Black Album. <laughs> <laughs> he got asked about it. Uh, I just saw a clip where he was like, I told him to shoot it down on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, no. Balloon, get out of here. Yeah, so I think there's a possibility. <laughs> He's an old man. He's very anti-balloons. <laughs> This is the constituency most against balloons in all of humanity. Right. I've seen that Stop film. Fun. Clown lures you into a sewer with those things. <laughs> you stay away from my brother. He doesn't fit down there. I mean, you ever wonder where they go? You ever lose a balloon as a kid? Um, I do wonder where they go. And do they? So they here's go the thing with balloons. Oregon <laughs> and Montana. Since we keep talking about them on the show, do they go too high up and pop, yeah. or do they just run out of air? Or no, they they go to another country and cause an international incident. <laughs> okay, there uh, there was a city I can't remember what city it was that tried like as a just a weird city civics pride thing. Uh, did a day where they released like a fucking million balloons from you know the Whoa. middle of town, and Hooray. then you'd sit and watch them all disappear to the sky. And it was like an ecological disaster; like it killed a bunch of birds and shit because you're just putting rubber out into the environment. Turtles are all choking on your balloons. <sighs> yeah, turtles find a way to die in the most creative uh, means. They it would have been it- cool if it was the the Goku from the Thanksgiving Day Parade. It was just floating. <laughs> Over Oregon. <laughs> just an entire flock of seagulls trapped under the Goku. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like watching, you know? You get Alex Jones like, it's the Japanese. <laughs> um, you can see here the Super Saiyan Blue Goku is actually a leaner form than Super Saiyan 3 or 4, implying <laughs> his new godlike powers have actually thinned him down, <laughs> made him more efficient. There should be, you know how our environmentalists are like, keep it in the ground about oil? Yeah. Because this clearly sounds like uh, balloons that cause a lot of environmental issues. Helium. Unrelated news Helium. this week. We opened a new uh, oil mining project in Alaska. Oh, great. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, but environmental should be like, helium, keep it in our lungs. Interesting. You know? Instead of losing balloons and you get sad and it goes away, have fun with the helium. Doing really high voices. Yeah. Well, but <laughs> keep it in your lungs. Helium, keep it in your lungs. I don't know if that's a good... Like a- it sounds dangerous. Because I mean, it, it, well, if, oil lives in the ground. Helium doesn't live in our lungs. It does if you're around clowns all the goddamn time. <laughs> Keep it in our lungs. <laughs> I feel like that's dangerous to say on the radio. I can't tell you why. Somebody's gonna find a way to helium, helium themselves to death. Yeah. Is it like doing whippets when you do helium? When you get, he- I don't no, think you doesn't. get high. You don't get high. You just get the getting voice. high is the thing with whippets. Yeah. Actually, yeah, the clown at your children's birthday party <laughs> just fucking. <laughs> Man. <laughs> they don't know how fucked up I am, man. Oh, shit, that's a lot of kids. I'm going to get on my tricycle. Oh, fuck, I fell on the ground. I heard you can kill yourself with enough helium. Really? Yeah. Uh, I think there was an old Doug Stanhope bit about Helium, it. keep it in your lungs. He had a, he had a fan <laughs> who killed himself with helium, and then like the end of the bit is him going, goodbye, cruel world. It <laughs> <laughs> is funny. It's funny. If you died by the helium ingestion, you'd have to laugh at the end. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Amid your death spasms. <laughs> um, 
What else? So oh, socialism. Socialism illegal. denouncing bill. Well, it's not illegal. I know. But- <laughs> There's a lot of shit I don't understand. <laughs> We're going to talk about the Fed later, which I don't really understand. I don't really understand how <laughs> Congress works. I'm not like uh, some people, you know, that's like they get really into the intricacies of it. I don't I wish I didn't have to pay attention to it. Here's my main question about this. This seems like a basic question. Uh-huh. Do they pass law like fucking bills and shit they don't do anything like this yeah. all the time they're yeah, just yeah, yeah they're resolutions they're declarations of well, the government why because okay. this just seems like a chain letter like every, yeah. pass if you agree <laughs> socialism is bad I mean, that's, that's literally what it is we should say we should say what happened but it is as far as i can tell tell me if i'm wrong there was a in the new republican controlled congress good so far yep. okay uh house of representatives a in the House of Representatives in the United States of America, a bill that passed and uh, with overwhelming support, except for a hundred Democratic naysayers, which is um, low or high, depending, depending on uh, what side of the fence you're on. But uh, the the Republicans really wanted to pass a bill, just saying that um, your grandchildren, uh, Gen Z and millennials and uh, younger, uh, overwhelmingly approve of socialism and that they're bad. And that's what the bill is. And so it was like, it talked about like Stalin and. Yeah. It's, it listed it's, the <laughs> horrors of socialism. It's also like incredibly inaccurate. It said that mil, like tens of hundreds of millions of people died in the uh, Soviet Revolution. Yep. Which, <laughs> like. They mean like the storming of the Winter Palace or something? Like. Uh, well, the fact. The, the like numbers on it are all kooky, but I mean, the basis of the thing is still wacky it's like congress passing a resolution that like stealing is wrong (laughs) 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 just some toothless thing that is like if people don't talk about this enough but uh, a penny saved is a penny earned resolution everyone in congress is a million years old and it has the feeling of like uh you've passed a referendum that i'm the world's best dad (laughs) sort of thing it does have kind of a you know victory tinge to it because the point where you feel like you have to do that because uh, the, your ideological enemy is becoming so overwhelmingly popular with the entire youth that does seem less like a win for you and more like a win for us. Right, Unless, you know, they back it with more book banning and uh, other yeah, like, which uh, openly fascist already policies. Already happening, yeah. yeah, at the state level. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, 40% of Democrats voted against it, which is, like, not enough, but also I think like, like 10 years than, ago. Yeah. Way more than would have happened. It would have um, just been Bernie Sanders and then somebody who like didn't read the form. Yeah, uh, it was disappointing to see that AOC voted for it. Is that true? No, she didn't vote for it. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. What? We, was, was <laughs> the Sanders joke? Is like, huh? No, I, I was. I'm honestly thinking about just tweeting if that. If you can spot and Anders' how lies, many, no, I want to see dude, how many. If you tweeted that, so many just terminally online leftist accounts would be frothing at the mouth, yeah. just losing their mind. Like, can you believe this is real? And it's like not right. And they and they'll just think that from now on. Spreading infor- misinformation is a joke to you. <laughs> you're you're sending out psychological balloons of warfare out into Twitter.com. <laughs> yeah. I specifically I- checked to see if she voted for because I was like kind of thinking about the same thing. I was like, I wonder if this is going to happen and if there's going to be like a weird reason because of the, like the way that that uh, rail thing worked out last time and stuff. But uh, that would be a funny one to hedge on. Be like, my whole thing is I'm the first democratic social- <laughs> socialist uh, elected to office from the force of DSA. But also I got to condemn it. These right. motherfuckers. Ro Khanna voted for it. Ro Khanna voted for it. He, but- he was like... He tweeted later, he's like, well, we got to frame things a little bit better, you know, economic development. That's a big thing. Uh, FDR understood that, and so did Otto von Bismarck. And so he's Who like, is this man? <laughs> what constituency is he representing? It's so he's strange. The Kaiser. <laughs> it's, it's the th- weirdest thing is because he will take out these, stake out these uh, pretty reactionary positions, but then still do the rounds on, like, not our podcast, but, like, the left... The majority when, report. Well, even like, you know, he'll go on. Democracy like, now. Even other ones like uh, Bad Faith or I think he's, you know, he'll do uh, the the ecosystem, the progressive ecosystem and just get um, fucking thumped. Is he doing, he, is he doing like a, a heel circuit? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, is he like edge, but for, uh, but for politics? I guess so. He's just a really weird 
guy. He's I'm sorry, I don't know more wrestlers, say, by the way. Edge I, is the most recent I heel I know. respect the fact that he does actually do... I, I had the chance to actually ask him a couple questions with Katie Halper like three or four years ago. <laughs> and I asked him um, something we'll get to later in the, the interview. But I asked him, like, do you, as a member of Congress, like, do you have a goal in mind that we, that a lot of progressive socialists share, which is that one day no U.S. bases anywhere else in the world but the U.S. Mm-hmm. And he said no. He was like, well, we might need one for, you know, geostrategic capabilities or whatever. Of course he's hedging on that. Right. He just voted to condemn socialism yeah. in Congress. Yeah, this guy. <laughs> he's and not if even... you look at his, yeah, his background, he used to, he was, eventually he got elected as a, a Bernie crat, but he's in this kind of weird, uh, like, California milieu where, yeah. like, there's a lot of Silicon Valley money floating around, and he's like pro tech development. Like he wants to. There was a political strain that was definitely a palpable thing a few years ago, where it was a popular, uh, a populist angle to be a left of center Democrat that I think some opportunists were eager to cash into and label themselves as, and then operate completely independently of once they were actually doing. Yeah, politics. I think yeah, some of these people, though. I mean, it's hard to tell how much is is just him being a weirdo, just him having just right. strange idiosyncratic. And I don't views. mean that in a butt hurt way right. or anything, but it's just like they're politicians. They that's all they do. Yeah, is yeah. They trick you and you know sneak right. around and. It just reminds me of shoot down balloons. Someone play a board game with a very chaotic strategy. Like, yes. I don't think it's an ideological yeah. thing. This is a strategic thing in politics. You put yeah. all of your risk tokens in Australia? Um, Andrew Tate's dad. I, I was talking about AOC earlier. And another thing that happened with her this week is that uh, she gave a, um, a fiery speech in defense of Ilan Omar because Ilan Omar is being called an anti-Semite again for uh-huh. for critiquing it, Zionism. And she shit. was taken off her committee. Um, right. But I also saw like crazy leftist accounts like uh, making fun of it. And it just said, at this point, I'm like, people lost the thread. That's, I think that's yeah. good, right? If your job in, if you are a politician in Congress, your job is to give fiery speeches right. all the time. That's well, literally what your job is. I, but she was like critiquing Zionism. So I don't understand li- the I critique mean, of her critiquing Zionism from a left perspective. It was in just that, that it, I saw what you're talking about. It was just that it was cringe and it was pause no. and you're not being based right now. Right. You're, you I know, think you, there is yeah. a, <laughs> That's literally the whole thing. I think there is somewhat of a fair critique there and hard for me to say again as her boyfriend. But uh, <laughs> Anders she, looks just like her fiance, I believe. She said that the reason she was being Ilhan Omar was being targeted and uh, like stripped of her because she's a woman of color, right? Which is not, and I'm not like doing an anti-identitarian thing, but I do think she's arguably sort of eliding anti-Zionism and being uh, against Israeli apartheid, which that's the real reason. Let's be honest. But she has, you know, and and it's fair to say the water is very murky in the argument because it's like it can be both. Right. Some people just hate identitarian shit so much that they're like, if she said it, she is a liberal. I really do think the surface level reason is, oh, look, this is identitarian reductiveness or whatever. But then the real reason is, oh, my God, cringe giving a fiery speech. The reason people are critiquing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, look I mean, at, look, anything she says. Look at this woman speak so passionately about a thing. It's so. Instead, what if she was smoking she Marlboros be, instead? Yeah, she that would be, be so cool. Doing irony in the House of Representatives. <laughs> she should be the first politician to not speak like a mime. <laughs> Just wear a leather jacket and chill out all the time. <laughs> she should do Wojak at the rest of the representatives. And yeah. Stuff. It will be interesting to see uh, what happens with this resolution because it passed the House. Is it going to pass the Senate? I think there's a good chance it will. Oh, because it's a bill, so it has to. Yeah. It like, goes to more people. Right. It's not just a parade day for you. As far as I know, it goes. I mean, <laughs> the president I think sometimes there are. Um, but uh, is, I mean, obviously, Bernie's going to vote against it. And then who the fuck else? I don't know. Elizabeth Warren, who's considered like the second most left-wing member of the Senate. She's going to hit clapped, it. Stood up and clapped when Trump condemned socialism. So She's going to hit it. She's going to make herself known. And then will Biden sign it? Is the other Biden thing. will well, definitely that, sign it. But it's like, well, then what? It doesn't do anything. <laughs> it just says well, we it hurts my feelings. agree to hurt <laughs> Alex's feelings. I feel like everyone's <laughs> passing resolutions to that effect, and it's not right. I held a house meeting to denounce Murray, my cat, the other day. And I'm still waiting to see if it passes the upper chamber in my apartment. He's honestly getting too big for his britches. He's like... 
prodigiously wide. He's very fat. I think he's much fatter than when I got him a year and a half ago. It's just, it's just like in a powerful way. He's like a he's like a barrel chested cat. I've never seen it before. <laughs> it's so much buckle fat. <laughs> you hear about that shit? Buckle fat? Yeah. No, what's buckle fat? I think it's cat's belly, but I might be talking on my ass here. Yeah. It was like a, it was a meme for a week. <laughs> for the moment of silence, we were all pausing to look at the cat. <laughs> He's so the, way. Fat. the other, the other sort of annoying thing about this is the Democrats are kind of like hedging on it, and I mean, oh god, that was so annoying to see the House, the new Democrat caucus, which is no longer new. Right. That was Bill Clinton's fucking gimmick from the nineties. Uh, they released a statement. They're like, we're not going to play political games with the Republicans. We are going to vote for this bill. Like uh-huh. <laughs> it's, literally, it's a, literally a political game, and they're going along with it. And then you have other uh, members of Congress who are like, "Okay, well, who's in the New Democrats? Is that like Hakeem why, Jeffries? Or? Why are these people getting paid like tax dollars to do this? Yeah. I'm so angry about this. It's this the thing sucks. is they have a fun job, and we're jealous. <laughs> we're jealous because our job is to tell people what's going on at their job. <laughs> You paid so much money to do. They get f- free health care for this. <laughs> they're the only ones with health care, and this is how they're spending their day. <laughs> yeah, but there was there was one uh, condemning grandchildren across America. They almost died, all of them, like two years ago. <laughs> and you know, it's it's hard to look back on that and be like, I wanted to defend you, but oh, you guys are really annoying. <laughs> you would think, you know, maybe they would like. Think about everything, bigger picture, what your job is, what your role in the world is. We got to send that. more chuds after him. There's only only one way forward here. <laughs> yeah. But there were some weird, like, like so Jerry Nadler um, voted against it. He used to be a DSA member, like, back in the 80s. Like, we forget uh-huh. that there were. I forget many DSA things from the 80s. But, like, they were not. So another annoying thing. There was a congressman who brought up all these Israeli prime ministers and were like, well, these guys are socialists. Huh? Are you against Israel? Like trying to do like backward, you know, like own them in a little chess match. Israel should just be a state at this point for the the amount we spend all of our time talking about it (laughs) and uh, dictating domestic policy by it. Right. And yeah. yeah, then they're trying to do these resolutions like, well, should this like someone's trying to tack on an amendment that was like Medicare and Social Security are not socialism. Do they not count? And it's like, just be against it. That is. And yeah, I, I've seen arguments to this effect as well, that the statement of uh, being against socialism will then be expanded to further arguments, defunding Medicaid and Social Security. Yeah. But I mean, people were already trying to do that anyway. So that's kind of happening unrelated to the, the silly letter to right. America's youth. Yeah, this is a, a complaint, a, you know, like a kids don't read letters from their grandparents anymore. So this is basically so they will. See <laughs> this it is on from TikTok. grandparents to grandparents. Passed a resolution that you do not call us and visit us anymore. <laughs> and it's sad. <laughs> it yeah. makes your grandfather, Mitch McConnell, sad. He sent you a card. The least you could do is send him a card. Donna he text a card. Made eight burgers and only one grandchild showed up. How sad <laughs> is this picture? <laughs> Mitch McConnell covered in burgers. <laughs> uh, I think it's slightly less funny than the balloon thing because the balloon thing does have the undercurrent of like, we may all go to war, but, <laughs> but it's still <laughs> right. pretty funny. I can see both of these things kind of tying into the, the start of a war against Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is Why anti- not? Yeah, they're tying in actually existing socialist countries to this. One of the atrocities of socialism is that they sent that balloon over here. <laughs> they take off their prisoners and put them in balloon factories. <laughs> uh, what time are we at? What are we looking at right now? We're like an hour. We're good. Is it interview time? Yeah. What, well, let's lead into the interview. We um, are talking to somebody today about the Federal Reserve. What the fuck is that? I'm dumb, man. When you I've guys heard talk of about this w- stuff. fine whiskey reserve. Is it any similar to that? Um, for money. Yeah. They, oh. they want the it's money to be brined correctly. And fine age to casks. Yeah. Brining is not a whiskey thing. Um, <laughs> no, it's so. a pickle thing, dude. <laughs> but I, I follow you, so it's a big vat where we keep all the money. Yeah. That's pretty I mean, much right. There is, and this used to throw me for a loop. What's the difference between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve? 
Well, I can tell you this. Janet Yellen has headed both of them. Um, she What's is, she yelling about? It's money. That's Who right. the hell is that? <laughs> Janet Yellen is a graduate of Fort Hamilton High School here in Brooklyn. Um, she, <laughs> That's top of her resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what the I, watched a, I watched a 60 minute segment about her last night. She's like three feet tall. Um, she's got a mop head. <laughs> Uh, this is such a funny answer to the question who is Janet Yellen <laughs> uh, she's from here and she's you can put her in your pocket <laughs> <laughs> she's an economist and um, she was she's been ar- I think more than anybody else has been around the scene the the leaders of the commanding heights of the economy she's scene. a scene elder she, yeah the alternative absolutely. money scene <laughs> <laughs> right which has now become um She's she's now sold out. She's mainstream. Uh, I mean, she was always part, and it was. We'll get into kind of the the details. She used here. to live in C squat. <laughs> she is choking victim apartment. She is like part of this sort of uh, post Keynesian um, milieu, if you will, in the economic world. Uh, but that is just another way of sort of interpreting the same sort of uh, ideas about capitalism being good and how do we stabilize that and keep it going. She does, um, I think, arguably care more about the... Uh, there's a, a point in this in this interview where they talk about how, um, I think after 2008, she had to scream at her staff, um, not in a mean way, but just like loudly remind, yell uh, at her staff and remind them that these are fucking people we're talking about Whoa. here. The economy's not just... Numbers, it's people. But then she goes ahead and, uh, you know, regurgitates the same policies that lead to exploitation and disenfranchisement and all that stuff. But she is now the chairman, or no, she was chairman of the Federal Reserve. Now she's the secretary of the Treasury. So I don't know how many people have held those two positions, but it's it's not a lot. Um, All-timer. Yeah, she's been around. She, uh, so she's she- hella into regulating? Yes. Yeah. And she's three feet tall. <laughs> this is what you need to know for the interview. Maybe a little taller than that, but so <laughs> the funniest part, though, she walks on stilts. <laughs> There's a 60 minutes segment where she comes in, and she's a very, you know, like most economists, is kind of a dour, you know, not an excitable person, very even keeled. But they show her the first dollar bills that have her signature on it, and she like is elated. She's so ecstatic. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> she <Janet> bucks. <laughs> right. She actually hoots and she then like signs the money like it's a record. Jumping up and down like a leprechaun. Yeah. I can trade this for Starbursts. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what they dream about. That's really what, if somebody grows up wanting to go into economics uh, and wanting to become Secretary of Treasury, they're thinking about that John Hancock. They, they want, want their name on the money. Yeah. Okay. At every point in their life, they're perfecting that signature. Uh, envisioning when it when it comes out. Who do we got in our pockets? Let's see. <laughs> Mnuchin. Oh, I got a Mnuchin buck. Oh, this shit is... I think I have one dollar. This is a really ugly signature. And I say that as someone... This oh, is like... Yeah, I also have a Mnuchin. This is this may be a stupid question. Where is the signature on here? Bottom right. Bottom right? This is one of the bottom left, too. The treasurer and the secretary. Of the, huh, what? Can, can you read this? Can you Can you read this? Janet Yellen. You know, I have one of these, too, from 2013. Uh, I don't know who this is. If, if you're listening at home, if you're driving your car, reach in your, reach in your wallet. If you're, read yeah, who's if on your bucks. You, sh- you should at least be legible. Mnuchin, it's ugly, but like my signature, you can read what it says. You ever I, really look at a dollar bill, man? <laughs> um, but to, Why is there a pyramid on there? <laughs> but to discuss I never the, thought about this. But Okay, so hold on. Before we get Mine has a this, picture of Charizard on it. Talk to me like I'm an idiot. Okay. The Federal Reserve regulates the economy, so it's Keynesian. Well, uh, it predates Keynesianism. So the Federal Reserve actually was originally a progressive demand because uh, rural America wanted something to stabilize the economy, and uh, Federal Reserve essentially acts as the backstop um, for all the banks, and they control interest rates. Do you lower or raise 
Interest rates. Uh, libertarians out there want to get rid of the Fed. I was going to say, why does Ron Paul want to blow it up? This is what I was trying to figure <laughs> because out. Because it regulates the economy. And he's like a free market guy. Okay. Yeah. He thinks that uh, anybody should you'd be able to coin their own money and it should just be like just a crypto fucking extravaganza all the time everywhere. I tried to pay for a hamburger the other day with a Ron Paul dollar. They would not take it. <laughs> That'll happen. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but it has been, of course... Absorbed into the capitalist system, there's a longstanding tradition that it's supposed to be independent from political decision making. Um, but that's a which we a, talk about in this interview. Yeah, obviously a bullshit norm, um, which at different times has been more flexible. But they see themselves as as stabilizing the economy, and a lot of them have good intentions. They want uh, people to get by, but the uh, method by which they stabilize the economy, it, it's kind of a ends justify the means thing often involves a lot of um, awful stuff and in and, and inducing insecurity in in the workforce and uh, just disciplining labor and all like, this like maintaining the surplus population sort of yeah okay. yeah a lot of stuff they, they are it's the exact mechanism of that okay right that, that makes sense which is and it's important to to note federal as you just mentioned Ron Paul there are a lot of cranks out there who are, are obsessed with with the Fed, to them that is the beginning and the end of, you know... Right, that's their thing, is they think that, like, that's the source of, right. like, inflation and crazy shit yeah. like that, and if we it, get rid of it... Then right, it all went sour in 1913, and... and uh, there's well, be a, a libertarian to be like, we need to bring things back to, a like, the best time ever, <laughs> 1913, <You're right>. <laughs> when everything was going great. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act, because um, the Fed is not the end-all be-all of the economy in capitalism, um, but it is still a crucial institution that it's important for socialists to understand, even if you are, like us, um, semi-illiterate, especially right. with economics, but just in general, too. And with this that in mind, <laughs> listen to how many compliments Anders gets on his questions during this interview. I am He's zooted, up two I to am, three. I am zooted on coffee through this whole thing. My words He's fucking slur, spitting in there. we get a lot of good info from uh, somebody who studies this stuff a lot and uh, is doing some FOIA requests to the Federal Reserve. Very secretive institution, uh, traditionally. That's part of the separation, too, is they're like, we got to operate in secret. Um, however, they apparently, uh, at a certain point, will release memos and things, one of which is a memo written by our current Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, one of her, um, one of her old... Singles that was from the 90s that just came out, uh, kind of like the You Know You're Right uh, of Yellen's career. Um, so to discuss that, we have the dude who uh, sent out the FOIA request, got the docs back, and uh, exposed it to the public. Uh, let's go to that interview with Tim Barker. Okay, we are now joined by Tim Barker, an economic historian. Uh, who recently did a little digging through the uh, the government's archives, uh, did a FOIA request that found some some interesting stuff from the 1990s. Uh, Tim, uh, why did you uh, request this FOIA, and, and what did it show? Yeah, so um, as a historian interested in, you know, uh, class analysis and social conflict and labor, I was always really interested in the fact that uh, policymakers at the Federal Reserve seem to talk about the economy exactly like you would expect socialists to talk about it, except kind of in reverse, right? They talk about a struggle over um, the social product, but they get worried when workers are getting too much. And so I'm always kind of on the lookout for examples of this kind of language and thinking. And I was uh, going through a book from 2003, I think, which is Bob Woodward's uh, very celebratory biography of Alan Greenspan, who was the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, from 1987 until around 2005. And uh, Woodward just mentions in a few pages that um, at one point, Janet Yellen, uh, this is the mid-90s that I'm talking about, in the mid-90s, Yellen was on the, um, the, the part of the Federal Reserve Board that makes decisions about monetary policy, basically about um, how much to tighten money and credit conditions to try to set the pace of the whole economy. And Woodward mentions that Yellen played an important role in convincing Greenspan that it was possible to hold rates lower than people had thought before. 
Um, and the way that this worked and the way that it relates to unemployment and labor and class politics is that um, the Federal Reserve is generally wary of lowering interest rates too far, right, of making money conditions too easy because they worry that that will tighten the labor market and lead to an increase in, in wages that gets out of control. Um, so what the Yellen memo did was to try to convince Greenspan and the rest of the policymakers at the Fed that they didn't have to worry quite so much of that, about that, that they could let interest rates fall a little further than they had thought before because workers were now very insecure, because there had been a big sort of, you know, historic shift in bargaining power from workers in favor of employers since the 1980s. And this was a reason um, that they could afford to have monetary policy be a little looser. And the, the book you mentioned is called Maestro. You said it's a it's a very favorable uh, sort of reflection on him, and it, it's interesting. It was written in two thousand three. Woodward is kind of uh, seen as like a liberal journalist, um, but this and this is kind of a, for a moment where when Greenspan was in favor with a lot of sort of liberal Democrats, you can look forward about five years, and he, he loses a lot of his influence after the the two thousand eight crash. Um, but it, could you say a little bit more about the the tenor of that? book, uh, no pun intended, tenor, because it's called Maestro. And I'm curious if that has anything to do with the fact that Alan Greenspan was actually a, a jazz musician uh, at one point in his career before he became an economist. Yeah, that's a, that's a really um, great set of questions. I mean, Woodward is funny, you know, because he, people think about him as vaguely liberal because, you know, he was associated with bringing down Nixon. Um, but I learned recently that he didn't even vote. Uh, he couldn't bring himself to vote for McGovern in 72, even though he was literally the guy breaking the Watergate story. So he just didn't vote. You know, he Bernstein was kind of a red diaper baby, but Woodward was, you know, a naval officer, much more of an establishment type. But I think you're absolutely right that across the board, including liberals, um, there was a kind of hero worship of Greenspan in the late 90s that uh, in retrospect is just kind of out of control and shocking. And it's certainly the case that uh, the Democrats in the Clinton administration, including uh, the Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin and his kind of uh, protege crony Larry Summers saw themselves all working with Greenspan sort of on one team, you know, so definitely uh, a, a very bipartisan sense of, of Greenspan as a kind of a genius, right? And the, they thought that the the relatively good conditions of the 1990s, um, especially the latter half of the decade, were the result not of these bigger structural forces or coincidences or anything else, but the fact that there was this, you know, sort of unique uh, helmsman, right? And I think that the reason that's kind of interesting is that in a in a society which uh, supposedly eschews central planning and in, in favor of decentralization and the free market, we have sort of um, openly affirmed central bankers as these sort of heroic planners who you know take the temperature of what society needs, strike the right balance between different groups, and do it with this deftness. Which you know, if you asked um, you know if, if you asked Woodward or or someone else whether they would trust any other kind of bureaucrat or administrator to fine tune the economy this way, they say no. Like you're crazy. Haven't you read Hayek? But when it comes to the, the Federal Reserve and central bankers, there's there's a sort of sense of adulation, which I, you know, I try to puncture a little bit in my own work. Right. And and now to the, the memo itself, uh, you noted there's a really interesting line, I, I guess, to sort of the layperson that she would quote Marx. Yellen would quote Marx in saying the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. She actually says that. I think she I think she I think that's the um, I think she stole that line. That's crazy. I don't th- I don't think the line is in there. I think that oh, okay. was the. Uh, I think the intercept people say she might as well have said that. Oh, gotcha. She says when her when their time comes, they won't apologize for the terror. That's, <laughs> that's her catchphrase. That's pretty cool. She goes. I, not, think, she, I think they say they might as, that, that they, she might as well have said that. But it's funny. Boots Riley had a tweet with the same thing, and I I, I wasn't going to argue with him. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it, as as we'll get to, you're all about clearing up the vulgarity of of Marxists. So this <laughs> is maybe, uh, yeah, the, the, maybe a, a bit. Crude, but she she comes close there. Um, yeah. But as is noted, it's not that uncommon for these people to to quote Marx, um, which is interesting because it's kind of almost it it's may, may seem sort of ironic, but in a way, is it almost kind of like a frame of reference? Because as I found out recently too, apparently Richard Wolff uh, was colleagues with uh, Janet Yellen, or, or they were both students together. They they were in grad school, I think, and they'll occasionally meet up for coffee to this day. Uh, almost the playwright in me almost wants to see what that's what that conversation is like. Um, but what is the sort of the use of Marx in, in these circles? How do they use them as a, as a reference point? Is it ironic or are they actually doing doing something interesting there? 
Wow, that, I did not know that about Wolf. That's a fascinating detail. Um, so as I said, you know, Yellen doesn't literally quote Marx, but she might as well have. Um, and, uh, you know, if you want a, an example of that, um, this memo that I got through FOIA has some themes in common with some of her academic writing from the 1980s. Um, and I found a paper first from the American Economic Review, you know, sort of the top mainstream economic journal, where she cites, um, you know, sort of with interest, uh, a paper by a bunch of um new left sort of radical political economists um, about the ways in which, you know, productivity is actually a sort of index of, of shop floor power and, and class struggle. And so it's very clear that, you know, she was reading, if not Marx himself, uh, Marxist economists sort of from her same generation. And I think the way this works is there's kind of a, in, you know, in terms of just the pure theory and the intellectual space, there's an overlap between kind of Keynesian, post-Keynesian heterodox approaches and, and outright radical political economy or Marxism. And they have a lot of sort of things to talk about when they're just trying to figure out how the economy works, right? And they can sort of learn from each other in that, you know. So in this case, the, the article I referenced from the 80s, Yellen is sort of saying that, well, these Marxists have made an interesting argument that the decline in productivity in the 70s actually reflected working class power, that they didn't have to work quite as hard. But then I think the the rub comes in when some of these people, you know, step out of the seminar room and enter the actual policymaking sphere, like sit on the, the federal um, open markets committee at the Federal Reserve, because then, you know, you can't just take the position productivity is falling because workers are power and we're not going to do anything about it. Um, you know, once you take that position, you sort of flip these Marxist arguments uh, and see it as a problem to be solved. So in that case, you know, Yellen would say, if it's true, as these Marxists have argued, that workers work harder, you know, if they have less power um, to decide, you know, sort of how much to exert themselves, if you, then you sort of apply that Marxist lesson, but, you know, from the perspective of the capitalists, you say, well, if that's the case, and if it's further the case that we want to raise productivity in the whole economy, you say, well, I guess then we want to have some kind of insecure workers. And that's how you end up with a memo like the one Yellen wrote. Mm. Yeah, have you ever heard anyone make the take of like a, a business major reads Marx and is just like great idea or whatever? Yeah, like same book, different interpretation. Right. It's ultimately criticism. It's yeah. It's a it's a lens into into cap the system we have. Um, but this is is, is mid mid nineties, uh, which is remembered as a really as an economic boom time. Um, but as is revealed here and is often forgotten, it was a time uh, of really high job insecurity. So pe the, the feeling of uh, the workforce was um, actually not as, as secure as, as we remember it. Uh, how is that sort of, how does that sort of play into this and uh, what the Fed's policy is? What, why do they like it, uh, the fact that people back then were actually quite worried about being laid off and, and economic times getting worse? Yeah, it's actually it's, it's good to bring up that distinction because it's a sort of it's a much older and more familiar idea that, you know, high levels of unemployment will lead to less working class power. Right. Um, but what's new in this memo and in the 90s was this idea that you could sort of achieve the same effect with less unemployment, substituting this kind of fear of losing your job uh, for the actual loss of jobs, right? It's a kind of 2.0 reserve army of labor. And, you know, there's an interesting moment in, in the 90s where there'd been, you know, pretty brutal economic restructuring in the 1980s, but it, it mostly affected blue collar workers, right? Um, people in factories, mines, um, that sort of thing. The early 90s recession, uh, which is sort of the background for the 1992 election, uh, is is notable because you start to see layoffs among middle managers and sort of white collar workers. And that's when some of these terms like downsizing start to enter the economy. Um, and, you know, I feel like movies and, and uh, other pop culture of the time kind of reflect this. Right. So there's a there's a sense um, that, you know, because of basically the the reorganization of American capitalism through, you know, new forms of financial control and also through globalization, which is kind of a, you know, it's a buzzword and no one knows exactly what it means, but they know that it's happening. They know that, you know, your IT job maybe could get outsourced, you know, to another country. All these things are sort of adding up to a, um, a situation where you don't even need unemployment to make people afraid of losing their jobs. And, and one thing that's interesting is we're saying is, you know, Yellen is not the most, uh, sort of, you know, pro-unemployment, anti-worker Fed person. To the contrary, she's actually relatively dovish, right, which is to say favoring easy monetary policy relative to other people on the Fed. And it's kind of a paradox that she's making this argument in the memo about insecure workers to actually argue for a slightly more dovish policy. So it's sort of like 
the working class has been disempowered and the Fed continues to act like, you know, they still need to brutalize the shit out of them. And Yellen in this memo is saying a little bit like stop beating a dead horse. You know, not that she didn't think we needed to beat the horse in the first place, but then now maybe we can like lay off a little bit. Right. And throughout this kind of this time in these these circles, there's this concept of the, the Nehru, which is the. Uh, I believe the non-accelerating inflation rate of right. unemployment, uh, which I can you explain what that is and, and how they're using this this concept here? Yeah, so Nehru, which is it's um it's also closely related, though um, in, in ways that aren't worth getting into distinct. There's another concept that people might refer to called the natural rate of unemployment, and there's similar concepts. The idea there is that for an economy at like a given point in time, there's a level of unemployment uh, which you cannot go below without increasing inflation. Right. So if you think that the Nehru is at six percent, then the Federal Reserve, when they start to see unemployment approaching six percent, start to hike interest rates, even if they don't see inflation starting yet, because they know, quote unquote, from their models and theories that once you get below that, you're in this danger zone where as a just sort of strict relationship, you will see prices start to rise. Uh, and it takes a long time for the Fed to sort of stop thinking that way. In, so, in some ways, they really haven't stopped yet, despite, you know, some superficial changes recently. Um, and so what Yellen is doing in the mid-90s is not even saying, you know, get rid of this Nehru concept. She's saying, maybe we got the estimate of Nehru a little bit off. Maybe instead of 6%, it's 5.5% or 5%. Um, eventually, actually, by the end of the 1990s, by, you know, late 1999, unemployment falls uh, to around 4% for the first time since the 60s. Uh, and so that's like actually, you know, a meaningful change. But once that happens, the Federal Reserve kind of gets freaked out and yanks it again. Um, and you, you don't see that kind of unemployment again until the last couple of years. And is Nehru still a concept that's that has the same level of credibility today as it did back then? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question, right? Because there have been there's been some signs that some people at the Federal Reserve, you know, I think especially like among the staff economists, but also among the the, the, the people who actually make the policy, right, the top level people, that they've rethought some elements of this, right? And so one thing they've rethought is, is it even true that there's this sort of one-to-one relationship between unemployment and inflation? Is that the right way to think about it? And if you think about sort of the last couple of years, it makes sense why people are starting to rethink that because, you know, with the pandemic um, and the war in Ukraine and all these sort of you know, idiosyncratic forms of inflation, you know, very centered in, in certain sectors like semiconductors or motor vehicles, it sort of makes less sense to think of it in this like very mechanistic way. So there's definitely been some rethinking. Um, but I think there's maybe a kind of like zombie version of the neighbor, which which is still around. And, you know, I think you see it in um, Jay Powell's remarks where, you know, he still does think, I think, um, at least implicitly, that if unemployment gets too far down, you will face an out of control inflation problem. One thing I've noticed in some of his press conferences is he'll sort of mention the natural rate, right, which is related to Nehru. Um, but not quite own it himself. You know, there was a there was a point a couple weeks ago where someone was asking him, you know, if he was really calling for unemployment to rise. And he said, well, many people are saying that we're already um, below the natural rate of unemployment. So it wouldn't be that bad if we got more unemployment. But he was kind of just shying away from saying that he himself held that view. Right. And, you know, it seems today as if things have kind of kind of flipped. And you can correct me if this is too, too crude, because back then you had uh, a scared uh, workforce. And today, uh, it seems like the Fed is is concerned about the opposite thing, that um, people are too comfortable in uh, their employment situation or, or getting another job if they get fired. Um, what are their concerns with today? And in, in re- how, how would it relate to this this memo? How would things like, I guess, if, if somebody does a FOIA request in 25 years, uh, what's the version of this from today? What, what is Powell and his crew uh, concerned about now? And what are the steps they're trying to take to, I guess, um, loosen the labor market? Yeah. Um, so the way they think about it is that they're not against wage growth per se, right? And they even, you know, for a couple, you know, for the decade sort of after 2008 through around 2018, um, in fact, the economy was so stagnant and wages were so low that the Fed was actually having trouble meeting its inflation target, right? You know, they kept falling short of it. They wanted to have around 2% and they couldn't even do that no matter how hard they tried. And so that led them to kind of uh, experiment with tighter labor markets in the hopes that, you know, a little bit of wage growth would actually get the economy moving. Um, But they still think that there's this hard upper limit on how high um, wage growth can be. And this gets back to what I was saying about how the the head of the Fed is actually kind of a central planner. Like uh, Jay Powell just says, I have a target. You know, I think that wage growth 
consistent with our inflation target is this percent. And we're going to like do what we have to do to get wages back down. That's a quote from him to get wages back down to that level. What's really interesting um, about the, the target that he chooses is that he says that um, he wants to see wage growth of around 3.5% a year or less. And what that reflects is the 2% inflation target, which is what the Fed sort of thinks, you know, inflation should be in a normal situation, plus 1% or 1.5% for productivity increases. And, um, you know, the, the math of this is, is pretty simple, but we don't even need to get into it on the show. But if you break it down, if you say that wages should only rise at the rate of inflation plus the rate of productivity increases, what you mean is that wages can rise, but that the relative share of wages uh, in the economy can never rise. So uh, Powell has an explicit wage target, and if you break down the logic of it, it's a target that says, sort of just by mathematical identity, that the, the distribution of wealth between labor and capital should never change. Wow. Um, now, I want to move to a, to a related topic you've been been writing about. You mentioned easy money. Um, this is certainly something that's that's come up during the, the pandemic uh, with quantitative easings. I'm certainly guilty of this, of calling what, you know, the Fed's policy during the pandemic an upwards redistribution of wealth through easy money uh, economics. Uh, why is that perhaps not a helpful way to, to think about this situation from a, a Marxist uh, lens? Yeah, I mean, so let me just start with sort of what I'm what I'm not saying. You know, I think the this sort of this this view or this you know this this trope um, comes from a really real place, or you know really two real places, right? One of which is you know the United States is a just staggeringly unequal society, you know, in a way that is really hard to comprehend, and which in fact most people don't comprehend. If you ask them in surveys how unequal the country is, they will dramatically understate how unequal it is. So there is you know in a way there's not you know you can never talk too much about how insanely unequal this country is. And then the second sort of piece of reality is that. Um, monetary policy as opposed to fiscal policy, right? So changing interest rates and doing asset purchases as opposed to government spending uh, or taxing does work through financial markets. And one aspect of the inequality in this country is that uh, the ownership of financial assets and assets of all kinds is extremely concentrated in a few hands. So if the Federal Reserve is doing something like quantitative easing, um, you know, which, which works through financial markets, and the policy leads to an increase in asset prices, most of the benefit of that asset price increase will go to the small group of people who hold most of the assets, right? So that's all true. And I, you know, I, I have no objection to any of that. Um, the piece that I thought was, was kind of questionable in which on reflection, I decided wasn't really uh, supported by the evidence is that the low interest rate policy and QE was intensifying inequality or leading to widening inequality. And so, you know, what I just looked at, you know, fairly basic, um, data about the shares of, of net worth held by the various uh, income groups. And you see, basically, it was very unequal before 2008, throughout the decade after 2008. And then actually, the, the distribution got a little bit, you know, a tiny, tiny bit more equal uh, in the post-2020 moment, uh, which was, I think, a result of the fiscal policy we saw there. But it also shows that any story about post-2020 uh, easy money leading to worse inequality is, I think, is unsupported. And so would your argument be that the, these policies could easily be used, uh, something like quantitative easing, if not the same thing? Uh, well, I, I mean, I guess we should probably explain what that means, quantitative yeah. easing, for our listeners. Uh, but right. could that, I th sure. But I think, you know, quantitative easing is this term that sounds like uh, something uh, an engineer would do. But I think it's better just to think of it as a, an extension of the asset purchasing that the central bank, the Federal Reserve, always does. Um, and they started to buy different kinds of assets, um, but they've always been trading money that they create to banks uh, in exchange for assets in order to sort of adjust the amount of uh, bank reserves that, that is in the financial system in general. Um, so, you know, when you think quantitative easing, I just think, you know, you should think about the Fed uh, buying and selling uh, assets from uh, other entities in the private financial system to try to manage the general amount of liquidity in the system as a whole. Okay, so if somebody were to say that they're just making up money and putting it in like McDonald's, which is what uh, kind of you know what, what it made it look like happening. What it feels the, like, yeah. Is happening. I mean, in two thousand eight, I remember the or, or after two thousand eight, the Fed was audited about what happened in the financial crisis, and they were um, using quantitative easing policies for all these major corporations. But it's not as simple as, and you know, some idiot podcaster may have framed it this way: them just making up money and putting it in their bank accounts. It's it's a little. More, well, they are uh, making up money. You know, okay. that, that part is true, um, but it was true before quantitative easing. Gotcha. Okay. 
Um, but how w- how could we use that sort of same policy for uh, maybe socialist or progressive priorities? Is there an easy money policy that actually benefits uh, the working class? Yeah, it's tricky because like, while I want to say that easy money is not the cause of all these problems, it's also just very far from being a solution on its own, you know, because you can sort of put this liquidity out there, um, but it could just easily, you know, sit around or not go into any sort of useful purposes, you know, even into sort of real business investment. So, you know, for for a decade after 2008, there was tons of liquidity in the system. The Fed was was, you know, creating lots of money, but it didn't really lead to much, you know, in the real economy. So I I think easy money is more of a a condition for progressive policy. Lower interest rates make it possible for you to do more deficit spending, which we could use, you know, for the the kinds of social services, guaranteed employment, um, the things that people on the left support. but slightly out there, there is a, a way you could you could actually use the Federal Reserve, which would be, uh, you know, so the way that the monetary policy works is that banks have accounts with the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve is a kind of bank of banks. You could, in theory, give every citizen a, a bank account at the Federal Reserve, right? Call them Fed accounts. And everyone gets one, you know, with your Social Security number. Then the Fed, if they want to put this money in the economy, could just put the money in, you know, Joe Schmo's account. Um, and since Joe Schmo doesn't have that much money, he's very likely to go out and spend it. Or if they wanted to take money out of the economy because there was inflation, they could say, hey, Joe Schmo, we'll give you 7% interest, you know, on your savings now in your Fed account. And that way, at least, you know, higher interest rates would be, uh, felt, you know, directly by everyone. And so would the, the easy money as the way it is now, you know, there are all these sort of intermediaries who have no social purpose, except, you know, to sort of make money along the way. And I think, although it's slightly utopian, there's technically no reason that every citizen couldn't have a Federal Reserve account. Mm, yeah. Uh, I mean, and I think when we're sharpening these sort of socialist policies, another one that I know you've been writing about is uh, military Keynesianism. And, and there's kind of this view, the standard view that like all the money we're spending on the empire and, and wars and stuff, we can bring that home, uh, spend it on domestic priorities, national health insurance, stuff like that. Um, but then you have kind of the the MMT people, some of the MMT people, modern monetary theory, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but they would say that because the U.S. makes a sovereign currency, you don't actually even need to cut that spending. You can just spend the money uh, on all the stuff. Um, do you think that should be, you, you know, what do you think the line should be on, on that um, from like a, a fiscal point of view? If we, if we were to uh, just spend on everything, uh, would that uh, create more inflation or um, is there a, a, an economic, uh, a hard, like a, a hard science economic argument for actually um, cutting that spending and, and putting it and bringing it home. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting question because, you know, I think there was a, there was a moment around this, I think it was in the 2016, you know, Sanders campaign where Sanders was sort of, uh, you know, embracing this line that, you know, because we're spending this much money on the F-35, we can't spend that money on something else. And he was sort of critiqued from the MMT perspective um, on that. And I think, you know, Stephanie Kelton, who was one of his advisors, got him to stop talking like that. I think where MMT uh, enthusiasts and uh, reasonable economists of all stripes will agree is that there are limits um, to government spending set not so much by the whether there's enough money in an abstract sense, but by the, the real productive constraints in the economy, right? So if you have 100 tons of steel and an F-35 requires 75 tons of steel and building, you know, uh, new social housing requires 75 tons of steel, then you can't build both, at least not until you've built a steel plant, right? And so I think everyone kind of agrees that at the outside, that's the limit. And so from a kind of anti-militarist perspective, um, I think people should focus on where are the places where military production is taking real resources, right? Not not dollars uh, in an abstract sense from social purposes, you know, so you could say, there's a shortage of certain kinds of, you know, skilled labor, skilled engineers, um, and the aerospace companies are competing heavily for these uh, workers, and they're able to offer, you know, very high rates because they have this cost plus contract structure with the government. You know, you could then raise the question, well, how are we going to have a climate transition if we have this shortage of skilled workers um, being bid up, you know, bid away by the military industrial complex? So that's the kind of route I would go. Or you could just say, you know, it's not really a question of whether we can afford it. It's a question of whether we should be bombing other countries, you know, and being able to afford something is not a reason to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, always a helpful reminder that the economy is not just numbers. It's it's a material reality that has uh, like hard 
physical constraints. Um, as we're closing out here, are there any FOIA requests that you're putting in now? Any any sneak previews of some some goodies in the future from uh, perhaps Fed or Treasury? I have a lot, and you know, since I've been critical of the Fed, I, I should take a moment to say that um, you know their uh, their FOIA staff, I think, handles things in a in a very uh, expeditious and and good faith manner, and it's you know. <laughs> One of the good things about the United States is it's possible to get your hands on some of this stuff, although far too much of it is, is classified. Um, I've got always a bunch of stuff in there. Um, I, I made one request uh, from the not from the Fed, but from the um, FDIC for a, um, a memo I think might exist from the early 1970s where they're already sort of using the language of a bank being too big to fail. And if mm-hmm. that's really out there, that's interesting because I think that, you know, projects some of this history of 2008 uh, much farther back in the past than we had realized before. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. Uh, Tim Barker, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, where can people find you and your work? Um, I'm on Twitter. Um at underscore Tim Barker, B-A-R-K-E-R. Um, and I've got a Substack newsletter, too, that is linked in the Twitter bio uh, if they want to follow me there. Sweet. All right. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you. Yep. Shout out to the Fed. Yeah. Thanks Thank for you listening, to the Fed. Yeah, whoever's... Um... Thank you for sending your balloons out to <laughs> listen to us. That's how they should do things from now on. Like green... Fed balloon. That's how we'll each get our individualized savings account. For I, think, I think the lesson of the week of is that people are naturally afraid of balloons, and we should be avoiding them here to forth. Well, I mean, they, maybe they create terror. They sent a red balloon over here, though, like from China. We should send a green balloon over there. Mm-hmm. Be like uh, capitalism, the color of the almighty I mean, dollar. If we're gonna do the debt payments to to China, maybe we should send it. Send balloon wise, green balloons. Yeah. Um, well, before this conversation floats away anymore, let's get to plugs, shall we? Someone's eager for the podcast to be over. <laughs> let's finish. <laughs> I'm done talking about balloons. I've said every thought I've ever had, <laughs> balloon-wise. Oh, folks. That was Tim Barker. That was a great interview. Uh, do we have any plugs before we get out of here? Another hot one. I have a big plug for this week. I've launched another Kickstarter, and Jeez, so I have what? to mention it on my goddamn podcast. Uh, Theater of Delight, season five. We're back. If you build it, they will come. That's right. After last year's wild success of season four, uh, off the ground, we have decided to make another one. Uh, if you donate money to the Kickstarter, not only will you ensure that this actually happens, but you get to vote on what the topic is. Will it be Grand Nidorino, a Grand Torino parody where he's racist <laughs> to Pokemon? You decide. <laughs> Get in there. That's kickstarter.com. Maybe link in the comments here. And then also, oh, other big plug, Andrews and I, we have a stand-up show. That's right. Coming next month, March, March. 2nd at The Silo, the, the new uh, secret loft space in Bushwick, and it is paid protest. We've returned, and... Uh, it's going to be my plug, but okay. Well, it's our plug. All right. Join. Would you like to say some stuff about it now? Yeah, come on out. Uh, keep your eyes peeled. Line up. Announced. Uh, shortly. Um, I'll say this. It's going to be lit. It will be lit indeed. I, I, uh, my other plug, I guess, I was recently on an episode of Your Kickstarter Sucks. Is that really? true? One of, That's a big uh, show. Alex Patak's No, you weren't. Oh. <laughs> you weren't Another on lie. this. You don't know Jesse Farrar. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Uh, little joke. No, um, check out our Patreon. That's what I'll say because, yeah, we mentioned the Richard Branson app up top. We had a lot of fun back there with our buddy Joffrey Khan. You can follow me at Anders Lee here on Twitter. It was a good one. It was very funny. Yeah. That's it for me. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm Jake. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and shit at Feral Jokes. I have a show coming up in Brooklyn doing uh, Claire O'Kane and Emily Panic's show. It's called Windbreaker, a comedy show on Sunday, February 26th. 8 p.m. at Union Pool with a very stacked lineup. Everyone very funny. So come on out to Union Pool on the 26th. Won't you take a swim at Union Pool? As always, Not funny all. when you're with old Sully. <laughs> I'm back. Come on. <laughs> References for nobody. <laughs> yeah. okay. okay. It's finished. It's finished. <laughs> on helium. It's finished.